Welcome to Set for Life with Pastor Ray Jensen. You can find us at setforliferadio.com. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's listen from God's Word, verse by verse, on how we can prepare for the coming of the Lord and Messiah Jesus, who died on the cross, so that you can be set for life. You'll be set for life if you give your heart and believe what He's done for you. You'll be set for life with the treasure stored up in heaven when you're through. You'll be set for life. He's going to remove Eli's family, Eli's house, from the priesthood, and that it's all about to go down. Again, put yourself in Samuel's shoes. Wait a minute. I'm studying under them, and they're about to go, which leaves me. <laughs> Hello. No pressure. But remember, God called him. God may call you to something, and it all comes down on you. Don't flip out, because if he called you, you're good. If God calls you to something, he also empowers you to do it. And so the specific reason he tells he gets Samuel in on it the specific reason for Eli's removal is listed here Samuel is informed exactly why Eli's family is going to be removed the Lord said I will judge his house meaning his family for the iniquity that Eli knows Eli knows about it it's not that he's not aware he's well aware and he didn't do anything about it he did not restrain his sons he disobeyed Now, Eli had no excuse to claim that he didn't know about it. God told Samuel he knew about it. And, you know, God expects, God demands that ministerial leadership restrain those who commit willful sin that causes the rest of the assembly to sin also. That's one of the uncomfortable points in the work that I do is when unrepentant, willful sin goes on in the assembly, I am required to restrain it. It's not comfortable, but it is commanded. And I understand why Eli didn't do it, because it's awkward. Now, if you remember in chapter 2, Eli only told his sons to stop. He just spoke to them mere words. But Eli never took any action on it. He never did anything about protecting the Lord's offering that his sons were abusing. He should have acted. He had the authority to do it, and he didn't do anything. And so it's now time for judgment. And God did not send a prophet to address Eli's sons. The prophet addressed who? He addressed Eli. Now, Eli could have said, well, the sons are the ones doing it. The prophet says, you did not restrain them with the authority God gave you. And so it's now time for judgment. And God did not send a prophet to address Eli's sons. The prophet addressed who? He addressed Eli. Now, Eli could have said, well, the sons are the ones doing it. The prophet says, you did not restrain them with the authority God gave you. Eli was the responsible leadership. The prophet went after, the Lord went after the leadership. And the Lord said that the news of their removal, because they were way up in the ranks, because they, they oversaw the tabernacle, that news is going to shock the world. 
You know, when the boxer goes in the ring, he always says, I'm going to shock the world. And when he wins, everybody, oh, everybody's texting, social media goes out. The Lord says, what I do to these guys is going to tingle everybody's ears. It's going to freak everybody out. Now, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're going to die soon. But the removal of his family line, because he says he's going to remove the family line, the removal of the family line will not happen. It won't take place until later. And I want to show you. I know we're bouncing around a little bit, but I'm trying to streamline it together so you're aware of what's coming. Okay? Because he just told Samuel what's going to happen. Let me show you what happened. Way up in 1 Samuel 14, verse 3. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. The Lord's priest in Shiloh was wearing an ephod. We have a lineage here. How many generations down from Eli is that? One, two, three. So you got son, grandson, great grandson coming down there. He's in 1 Samuel 14. Now, wait a minute, Ray. I thought he was about to cut the line off. Well, hang on. (laughs) I want you to, um, I wanted to get us forward in time to where the removal of Eli's line actually happens. I actually mentioned it last week. But Ahijah is Eli's great-grandson, and he served as priest under King Saul. But the actual removal of Eli's line from the priesthood happened later in 1 Kings. That's what I told you all last week. It happens in 1 Kings. Let me set up the story for you of what's going on in 1 Kings. David, King David, he's about to die. Okay, and there's still Eli's line in that time. King David's about to die. And he was about to pass the crown over to Solomon. Now, Solomon's brother, Adonijah, he wanted to be king instead. Now, typically, you know, the crown is not passed from the king until the king dies. Once the king dies, the next guy gets to be, to be uh, king. But Adonijah figured he could steal the crown before David died. He wanted to take it away for himself. And so that he could be king instead of Solomon. And so he tried to make it look official by saying, I'm going to take any priest I can get. I'm going to grab a priest. We're going to go do this coronation ceremony. We're going to light up some sacrifices. We're going to check off our little God boxes. And we're going to make everything look right. And then I get to be king because everybody will say, oh, he's the king. And that's what he tried to do. But Adonijah, it's kind of funny when you read that story. Adonijah would not invite Solomon, who was supposed to be king. (laughs) And he would not invite Nathan, who was God's actual real prophet guy. Because if he had invited either one of those two, they would have blown the lid right off Adonijah's attempt to steal the crown. So he invited who he wanted to and not invited the ones he did not want in there. Take a wild guess at who the priest was that was wicked enough to join Adonijah in trying to pull off this trick. It was a priest of Eli's line, and his name was Abiathar. Abiathar of Eli's line. Wicked guy. He invited him to do the little, let's steal the crown party. David and Solomon found out that that, uh, Abiathar's attempt, they were trying to steal the crown, and David was too close to death to do anything about it. So what David did is he passed the crown over to Solomon before he died so that Solomon would have the authority to do something about it. He passed it to Solomon before he died. And so Solomon dealt with Abiathar's sin. 1 Kings 2.27, now that you know the story, it says, So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. 
So what the Lord said to Samuel about Eli's removal, this finally got done 130 years later. (laughs) 130 years later in 1 Kings 2.27. Eli should have exercised his God-given authority the way Solomon did. Solomon got it done. He dealt with the problem. But Eli did not. But friends, this is why you have to deal with sin quickly when it gets in your house. Because you have been given the authority to do something about it. If you don't deal with it, it'll pass down through your kids. It will pass down through your family and their friends. And it'll mess everything up like a grass fire that moves real fast. Let me ask uh, you a question. Why was the Lord removing Eli? Because we've got to remember it says his sons abhorred, they hated the Lord's sacrifice. They were stealing the choice cuts meats of the sacrifice. They were taking the choice cuts so they could eat it. Now, 1 Kings 1.9 says that Abiathar did sacrifices to make Ahijah's coronation look like it was valid. He did sacrifice. Come on, priest, you're with me. You're Eli's line. You'll do it. Come on. Let's go do these sacrifices. That priest abused the sacrifice of the Lord too because they used that sacrifice wickedly. So basically what's going on here is that still 130 years later, Eli's family line is still abhorring, misusing, abusing the sacrifice of the Lord. Eli didn't stop at 130 years before and all the way later, his line is still abusing the sacrifice. Let's slap him in as king. We'll get the power. Light up a sacrifice. Check the box. Abuse of sacrifice. That means after 130 years, there's still no repentance. His line never did say, you know what? This is wrong. We need to stop. They never did. And that's why God has to deal with it. Now, we'll get back to Samuel in a minute. I know I'm giving you a lot to chew on, but I'm trying to let you see all the angles. And I want to ask a question. Why did God wait a whole 130 years to fulfill what he told Samuel in Shiloh? Why did he wait that long? First off, 130 years is not long for God, okay? <laughs> it's, it's nothing. Also, we see that the Lord fulfilled the promise to remove Eli's house while at the same time executed judgment against Abiathar for trying to steal the crown. He had to deal with the, the attempt to steal in the crown and at the same time fulfilled the promise. And so both what you see is both judgment And the fulfillment of promise came together at the same place. Two birds with one stone. Judgment, fulfillment of promise, same time, same place, two birds with one stone. So now, back to 1 Samuel. The Lord tells him he's going to remove Eli's family line from the priesthood. But look at what he said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 3.14. He says, the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Atone, atonement. Atone means to cover. It means to make up for, to make reparations for. This means that because their sin would not be repented of, but they would carry it for 130 years, continual, willful, deliberate sin, that means there is no sacrifice that will ever cover it. That means no forgiveness because they refused to repent. 
Their sin was continually willful. Now, I hope you notice that the Lord did not speak to Eli about his removal until after his sons refused to repent. We saw that in in chapter 2. He says, stop it, guys. They said, no, we're not listening to you. And then they went off and did it anyway. Then the Lord came in because the Lord had to have the sons demonstrate their unrepentance. They would not turn. Their choice to disobey was adamant. It was final. And judgment's coming. They sealed their fate. It's done. There's no sacrifice left for willful sin. And Samuel now knows about it. First Samuel 3 and 15. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I can hear regret in that. Verse 19, so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, I believe that the reason Eli pressed Samuel to tell him what the Lord said is because you got to consider that Eli is very, very troubled. He heard some heavy, heavy news. He knows his line is about to be cut off. Both of his sons were going to die on the same day, the Lord told him. And he wants to know if Samuel had any new information about it. I mean, wouldn't you want to know? I'd want to know. So he pushed him to tell him about it. Now, I have to admit here that even though Eli really messed up and what's done is done, his response to Samuel, it shows that he took it like a man. I'd have to say he took it like a man with regret, but he accepted it, what Samuel told him. That had to be hard. You had to be kind of a tough guy in some sense to be able to take that news and, and actually have the ability to, to admit, yeah, that's right. That's the Lord. He did actually say that. I agree. Rather than argue with it and try to look like, well, I've been your superior all these years, Samuel. No, the Lord would not say that about me. He looking down at Samuel. Yeah, that was him. He's going to do what's good to him. I think Eli's being humbled down a little bit, but it took a lot to admit that. He took it, I guess, better than maybe I would have. I don't know. So um, anyway, he knows the Lord's going to do what's right. And he probably realized now that he should have done more to restrain his sons. He should have done something about it. Eli's on his way down, but Samuel is being exalted by God. He's no longer the student priest. Now he's a prophet, a recognized prophet of God. Because verse 19 says that the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground, meaning that everything that Samuel prophesied actually happened. The Lord held up everything Samuel said would happen. Now, before Samuel's days, remember it said the word of the Lord was rare. But now that the Lord has chosen somebody that he's willing to speak through, the word of the Lord is suddenly about to become common in Israel. What a great time this is going to be. Now, some application for us. This chapter 
It focuses on the Lord's removal of sin from the ministry. And we need to recognize the difference between what Paul had wrote about removing unrepentant sin from an assembly versus removing willful sin from the ministerial leadership. It's kind of a very different thing. I mean, imagine if I was doing some kind of goofy stuff and I wouldn't stop it. <laughs> it's not, y'all would be like, well, it's not us, the assembly. It, it, it's him. The pastor's doing it. That's a different thing. We got to see what's going on here in 1 Samuel. When the ministry itself, the leaders of the ministry themselves are the ones causing the sin. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Where does judgment begin? All those unbelievers out there that need to get right with Christ, but I'm the one that's right because I'm in the Lord. No, it doesn't start with them, it starts with us. Did the Lord first go after the women who were sleeping with Eli's sons in the tabernacle? No. Did the Lord first go after those who prepared the sacrifices wrong? No. Who did the Lord address first? Those who led the house of God. Why? Because the house of God influences other people. And so the Lord had to remove the willful sin from the priesthood. Now remember how he told them in 1 Samuel 3.14 that because of their unrepentance, there was no sacrifice left to atone for their sin. They were willful about it. He goes, there's no sacrifice left for these guys. I want to show you something for us. Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. There's a four-letter word that thing's talking about. What is it? Hell. Fiery, it says. Willful sinning after they have received the knowledge of truth. There's no, there's no more sacrifice for your sins. You, you, you turned on it. You wouldn't have it. Nothing's going to save you. It's Jesus or nothing. Remember, Eli's sons, they were warned, were they not? They were warned. They received the, the knowledge. He told them, you got to stop this. You got to stop and turn around. They knew, but they said, no, we're not going to do it. And they went on. And the Lord says, no sacrifice left for them. And so the Lord is going to judge them without allowing any sacrifice to atone, to cover for them. For those of you who are hearing me now, Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for your sins. And you have to repent of sin before you can accept Jesus for salvation. You cannot accept Jesus for your Lord and Savior and still be in your old willful sin. Jesus said in, in Mark 1.15, I believe, he said, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent is first, the prerequisite. No change, no salvation. You cannot be in your old sin and be saved. Well, I gave myself to Jesus a long time ago. No, you didn't if you're still in your old willful sin. There's no sacrifice for you. You've got to repent. If Eli's sons should have stopped the mess they were doing, then we as believers have to stop the mess we were doing. Just the same. 
But if you insist on continuing in your sinful ways, then the sacrifice of Jesus will not cover you. But your only expectation is now a fearful, fiery judgment in a literal place called hell. This is the Bible. You're a fire and brimstone today, Ray. I'm, yeah, there, it's in there. But I'm also trying to tell you the way out of it. <laughs> so no, I'm not all fire and brimstone. There's a lot of grace in here. If you claim to be a Christian, but you refuse to do what Jesus says, if you don't abide in his word, you don't assemble in the body of believers. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 10 is the one that commands to be in the assembly. God tells us to do it. So we have to do it. But if you won't abide in his word, you won't assemble with the body of believers. If you won't repent of your sins, if you refuse to pray, basically, if you do not consider Jesus to be worth your obedience, then you have not made him your Lord. If you made him your Lord, he is worth your obedience. For those that don't, I'm saved, but I don't have to do anything he says. You're saying you did not make him Lord. Because if you're Lord, you're going to obey him. But if you think he's not worth your obedience, but you still demand of him by force that he has to save you without you having any regard for him at all, that means you kick at the Lord's sacrifice. You abhor the sacrifice of God. And that is exactly the same reason why the Lord refused Eli's family. Because they abhorred the Lord's sacrifice. Wow, Ray, that's a parallel straight to me. Yep, me too. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, but I'm a Christian, Ray, so everything's okay. Well, Eli's sons thought, but I'm a priest, so everything's okay. No. So do not ignore the warning of repentance like Eli's sons did. You know, I have to consider the fact that those hearing me, if on radio or podcast, today could possibly be the last warning you ever get before God has to execute his final judgment. And for those who are already saved, but you take the promise of salvation as an excuse to get away with disobeying God, well, I'm saved, he's not going to break that promise, so I'll sin all I want to. You just remember what happened to Eli. He had to answer, even though he had God-given discernment right up to the end, the consequences of his sin cost him and his family heavily. He did pay for it. Didn't mean he was condemned, but he paid for it. And a lot of people after him paid for it too. The Lord does not want you to be condemned. And so he sent Jesus Christ to take your penalty for you on the cross so that you can be set free. I want to show you an absolutely fabulous verse. Isaiah 53, 5 says, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. This verse is both a promise and a judgment because it talks about the chastisement was on him, but also our healing. It has the promise and the judgment that the Lord fulfilled by condemning sin at the cross. So you have a promise and a judgment. Now you remember how the Lord fulfilled his promise spoken to Samuel to remove Eli's line. And that promise and that judgment both came together and they were fulfilled at the same place at the same time in 1 Kings 2.27. When you look at Isaiah 53, you can see that the promise of salvation and God's judgment executed against sin, they were both fulfilled at the same place at the same time at the cross of Jesus Christ 
two birds with one stone. Thank you for listening to Set for Life. We hope you can join us next time, unless Jesus returns for us first. Set for Life is the radio ministry of Pastor Ray Jensen. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast at setforliferadio.com. Hi, this is Ray Jensen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to encourage you in God's Word. If the Bible doesn't excite you, then you're not reading it. I want you to remember that you are not worthless. You are priceless. Messiah Jesus died on the cross to redeem you so that you can be set for life. You'll be set for life.